Okay, it's time for another Scholars Podcast, and my guest today is Zoe Bush from Western Australia. Zoe is a 2019 John Monash Scholar with a background in law. She's a solicitor, a lecturer, a tutor, and among her many talents, her expertise is in climate change litigation. Let's find out more. Zoe, welcome to the program. Hi, Justin. Thanks very much for having me. Well, let's get into what you're doing at the moment. What exactly is climate change litigation? Well, it's a relatively new concept here in Australia. It's been happening for a number of decades uh, over in the US, but it's it's focusing on using law as a means to shift corporate behaviour, well, for me, shifting corporate behaviour on climate and holding companies accountable for the ways in which they're changing it. So uh, it can take many different forms. Uh, I focus on the corporate law side of things, but it can also focus on, you know, there's human rights climate change litigation, there's environmental law climate change litigation, but I focus on that corporate law side of it. And have you got enough to keep you busy? <laughs> yes, they um, <laughs> they certainly keep us very busy in this area of work. So we're never, we're never twiddling our thumbs. I would love if we were less busy, Justin. Mm. And and so, what what exactly is some of the work uh, that that you've done recently, without going into specifics? Yeah, I was, I was going to say I was about to give you the very loyally response. <laughs> no, no, it's I okay. You, <laughs> I can give you the specifics of matters that are yeah you know, on public record, but not for others. So, I mean, one that I can tell you about the specifics of uh, is uh, we recently acted, and this is very so it shows you how international this work is. Uh, so we we were assisting uh, our client based in Sweden, the Anthropocene Fixed Income Institute, to challenge Barclays and HSBC, so both banks based in London, who were underwriting bonds issued by the Japan Bank for International Cooperation, um, the funds of which would be used to fund a new coal-fired power plant in Vietnam. And that and the issue was that both banks had publicly committed just last year to not funding any more coal-fired power. And so we wrote to the banks basically, you know, raising with them that if they were to proceed with underwriting these bonds, that could give rise to a number of potential legal issues for them. And yes. we, those letters were released to the press and received quite, quite, um, quite good coverage in the international financial press. And, you know, it, very excitingly, just a few weeks later, the Japan Bank International Cooperation, so the ones who issued the bonds, announced that they would no longer be funding any new coal-fired power plants. And so I think it's, you know, I think it's really exciting because bits of work like that show just how alive the market is now to climate mm. as a financial risk and that the work we're doing in this legal space is really having an impact. Um, and, you know, you can sort of quite clearly see that tangible direct impact that's happening now. And I think sort of, so that's an example of a specific one. More generally, some of the things we're working on are, uh, shareholder class actions regarding companies' mismanagement of their climate risks. And, and you okay. know, a, a focus of climate litigation more generally, both in Australia and in the US, is sort of emulating the success of the tobacco cases. So if you remember the tobacco cases, you know, the, the issue were, there was companies knew that their products were causing harm. So in that case, tobacco, in this case, fossil yes. fuel. They were aware of the science of that, um, and yet they continued to sell them and deliberately mislead the public about the extent of that harm in order to keep generating a profit. And so the idea was in the tobacco cases and is now in the case of fossil fuel that 
they should be the ones footing the bill for the damage that communities around the world are now, are now suffering. Uh, and so, you know, in the US, there's really been a focus on doing that with ExxonMobil, where there are sort of, yes. they've uncovered documents that reveal that, you know, as early as 1970s, 1980s, Exxon knew that the consequences of their products were catastrophic for the climate. And not only did they conceal that information, but they poured millions of dollars into campaigns to mislead the public about the extent of that harm and and funded climate denial and funded climate denial scientists. And so the idea is, well, now that you deliberately misled us so that you could generate a profit, you should be the ones that foot the bill for the damage that this has caused. So, so that's sort of, that's generally what we're working on without going into any of the specifics. Yes. And, and would you say um, that that area of law or um, that branch of the law is, is a reasonably uh, new area? Yes, it is. It is in terms of this, this is the sort of more systemic mm. issues that we're looking at. In the US, like I said, it's existed for like maybe a couple of decades now. And you've really seen, I think there's now some, somewhere near around uh, 20, 28 cases by local councils or local councils in the US who filed cases against the carbon majors. So companies like ExxonMobil, Chevron, et cetera, um, for the damages they're now, so, you know, in order to protect against sea level rise and the cost they're having to pay to build seawalls, et cetera, et cetera, they're bringing claims against the carbon majors. And that's been happening for the last five years or so. But in Australia, it's really new. So we're really only now seeing these first sort of corporate climate cases coming through. And we haven't yet had that towards climate case, which is an example of what I was just talking about. Yes. Uh, we haven't had that we haven't had that big claim against a carbon major yet. And what's your view, uh, again, without going into specifics, about um, whether Australian companies, particularly those, say the big companies on the ASX, how they view um, matters related to climate change? I think, look, I think there's, I think there's signs for optimism, and I think there's, there's, there's cause for concern. I think the optim, signs for optimism are that, I think Australian banks seem to be. There was, I saw a report released last year, which indicated that Australian banks are among the best in the world in terms of disclosing their climate risk, okay. and and divesting from fossil fuels in their portfolios. So that's that's really impressive, and that's really exciting. Um, on the other hand, I think we unfortunately have a fossil fuel sector that's really digging its heels in, and you know, is and has and seems to have one seems to be winning this net this narrative in Canberra about you know our COVID economic recovery being a gas led one, and in circumstances where all our major export markets China, Japan, South Korea last year committed to carbon neutrality by 2050 or 2060, that's just an unrealistic narrative. And that's just one that that's not going to be where Australia's economic future lies and and it's misleading. And so I think it shows that we have a fossil fuel industry that remains very strong, uh, that doesn't want to change its ways and is unfortunately leading us down the wrong path given how the rest of the world is moving. So obviously the boardrooms of Australia need to take this seriously as opposed to potentially say 10 years ago where it wasn't mm. on the radar do you do you are you seeing a shift in in both uh, what's happening at a corporate level 
and a, pol- a policy change to ensure that uh, that large corporations have their act together? Absolutely. I think that's a, I think that's part of what's really exciting about working in this space at the moment is that I, I you know I for one really like focusing on the corporate side of things because I think capital is moving really fast on this. You know, you sort of had BlackRock uh, in you know in January last year commit to you know, making climate change one of its the number one criterion on which it makes its investment decisions. And, mm. and so I think capital is realising really fast just how risky or how urgent the problem is, how significant the role they have to play in it is, uh, and how risky it is for, for them to continue to invest in these projects given the reality that we face. And, you know, and I think the example I gave you earlier of Japan Bank for International Cooperation is an example of just how sensitive the market is to it. There was, I'll give you another example. There was another case we're working on recently, recently which I can also give some specifics about the media coverage, is um, was in relation to Woodside's disclosure of their climate risks. Hmm. And we initially sent, well, our clients sent our legal advice to investors in Woodside. And, and investors responded to that all asking for individual briefings so they could get further information on what these climate risks were and what it meant for Woodside's business and strategy and future financial prospects. And the, the response to that was something that, you know, our client said they, had, they hadn't had before. And so I think, you know, our clients are really noticing this shift over the last couple of years where the market is really acutely attuned to these risks. So how do you handle... Um, criticisms or arguments re the sceptics that say climate change is a myth that doesn't exist, it's all a lot of mumbo-jumbo and we should just forget about it? You know, Justin, I'm at, I'm at that point where I sort of think, let, let's just leave them where they are. I, <laughs> I, because the rest of the world has moved on. And, yes. you know, I think this Michael Mann, a famous famous climate scientist based in the US, he wrote just, re- just released this new book called The New Climate War and his thesis is that the old climate war was climate denialism and they've lost that war. And now the new climate war is about people saying they're doing things when they're actually not. So th- this yeah. idea of greenwashing, so saying we're yeah. reducing our carbon emissions when it's really just business as usual. Uh, and I very much agree with that. I think, you know, in Australia we have the cl- the highest rate of climate scepticism in the world. And even then it's something like 80s, last time I checked, 86% of Australians um, agree that climate change is occurring and that it's human caused. And in those circumstances, I sort of think, the problem's so urgent. Let's get on with business, and and I don't think there's much we can do to change the minds of that remaining fourteen percent, unfortunately. And I don't really think we need to. You know, it, it's very interesting you say that. If you look at um, Canberra and what has happened over the last ten years, climate change has undone at least three prime ministers that that I can think of. Yeah, it's it's such a political issue. Uh, mm. and, and I'm not seeing that really play out anywhere else in the world apart from apart from Australia. Is what's your view on that? Absolutely, I think I think it's fascinating the role that climate has in our politics. And there's a really great book um, I just read by I think it's Marianne Wilkinson called The Carbon Club, and it sort of unpicks it unpicks the sort of role that climate has had in our national politic over the last decade. And I'd recommend it to anyone listening. But I, you know, my, my take on it is that we, unfortunately, the, 
actually 350 Australia released a report just late last year, which, you know, was WA in its focus, but it sort of, it detailed the extent to which the fossil fuel companies have access to the political parties in terms of meetings and donations, so on and so forth. And I think, unfortunately, we've, in Australia, our main problem is disentangling fossil fuel money from our Mm. politics Mm. so that we're actually making decisions that are grounded in the science that are grounded in the public interest and not in the interest of what's going to ensure that a fossil an industry with a looming expiry date can continue to generate profits and uh, I think yeah I think I think we're really struggling with how to do that in Australia and I think a big part of it lies in disentangling those two things and perhaps that's why and because we have an economy that's so dependent on fossil fuels, mm. perhaps that's why we've, we struggle with it in a way that perhaps other countries don't so much. So was this an area of the law that always interested you and you thought it would be the focus of your career? Or did, did things change as, as you went through university and started working? Not at all. If you told me, if you told me a year and a half ago that this is what I would be working in, I wouldn't have really, yeah, yeah, okay. as, yeah, as recent as eighteen months ago. And I think it was really, it was the way I came to it is some, my work had always been in um, the criminal justice response to First Nations people with or First Nations young people with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So been this yeah. very niche sort of focus, and and I went to Columbia University to explore so to sort of, well, to sort of work on things related to that. And in the course of doing so, there was this, you know, I had space for one extra unit in, the, in this particular semester and and I heard amazing things about the professor that was taking it, Michael Girard, who was yes. really like a global leader in the climate change law space. And I was like, oh, well, you know, heard, give climate, it a go. Change, heard climate change is a problem. This guy sounds pretty impressive. I'll, I'll give it a go. And and I think it was the first time I actually sat down and grappled with the science and it was really scary. Mm. <laughs> it was really scary. And it was also, I think, you know, I when learning about, particularly about this corporate climate litigation stuff that was happening in the US and was being really effective, I was like, this is something we should be doing in Australia. And that could be really powerful in Australia given, you know, the disproportionate contribution we make to uh, greenhouse gas emissions globally. And so, yeah, it was sort of, it was, it's just this thing that I completely unintentionally stumbled upon uh, and became fascinated by and really concerned about and saw a space that me as a white lawyer here in Australia could really contribute to. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, you never really know where your career is going to end up and it's probably going to change uh, three, four, five times as you as you get older. So it was the, um, it was the John Monash scholarship that brought to, brought you to Columbia. What, um, what did you end up studying there? Yeah. So I did a master of laws at Columbia and my, my focus was really trying to think, I was really trying to think about, you know, I felt like throughout my Australian law degree and, and my practice as a lawyer here in Australia, I'd really had the opportunity to hone my black letter law skills, like my technical legal skills, but I hadn't really had an opportunity to think about my theory of change and the role that law had to play in that theory of change, and particularly my role as a white lawyer in that theory of change. And so that's what I really went to Columbia for. I really went to Columbia because they were thinking about law in a different way as, you know, as this sort of vehicle for change. Uh, And it was it was 
honestly more transformative than I expected it to be. You know, not only did I come across the climate change stuff, but I really got that opportunity to sit down and think about how to use the law uh, effectively as a vehicle for change. And now I feel like it sort of equipped me with those skills and I now get to actually put it in action in my current job. So you would have been there, uh, if my timeline is correct, um, when the Black Lives Matter campaign really exploded yeah. Um, yep. strongly. What was um, so? Tell us about that. Yeah, well, what what an amazing movement! <laughs> All credit to them. I so I was working for so I was working for Professor Kimberly Crenshaw at the time, and she's uh, so she's sort of. A, an African, she's a black scholar at Columbia who came up with the idea of intersectionality. And she, one of the campaigns that she runs is the Say Her Name campaign. So that highlight, highlights police brutality against black women and girls. Mm-hmm. And so I was working with her on that campaign when the protests were started kicking off. And then I started working with Law for Black Lives. So that's sort of like the legal arm of Black Lives Matter. And they were assisting the protesters by, you know, the first sort of thing they were doing is assisting the movement by, you know, helping, representing protesters who'd been assaulted by police or being locked away and getting so they could get back out on the streets. That was sort of the immediate immediate legal response we were doing to try and assist the movement. But we were also working behind the scenes with organisers who were sitting on city councils where they were trying to defund the police or sort of redirect money from the police into, you know, social support services. Mm. Uh, and obviously Minneapolis City Council voted to um, disband their police force and um, the New York uh, City Council cut the budget by a billion dollars of the NYPD. And so, you know, we were working with organisers in translating that momentum, that political momentum that they had built into tangible budgetary decisions um, that meant that you know the funding that was being used to criminalize criminalize black people was instead being used to you know uh, provide them with the supports and services that those communities wanted like education and better health services and better housing and so it was a really amazing it was a really amazing movement it's a really amazing point in history to be there working with these people who were really had the sense for changing the course of history was it a big change for you um, working as a lawyer in Australia and then going to the US and trying to pick up the the different nuances in the the American legal system? Totally, it's less about the you know it's less about the differences in the law, although there are many, and more about the difference in the culture in how they okay. practice law. So I think in Australia yeah. we have this idea that law is impartial and neutral, which it isn't, but we like to tell ourselves it is. Yes, and yes. In America, it's much more explicitly political. Uh, and and I think it's so the things that we as Australian lawyers would be very careful about saying or very careful about doing, American lawyers tend to have no problems about. And it's, so open, it was, it's open season, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And so it was a real adjustment um, to, that, to that different culture. But I think it's one that's really exciting and promising for movements like law for black like like black lives matter because it allows it makes lawyers look in the face the role that law has had to play in really oppressive systems and continues to have um you know whether in australia colonization 
in America, slavery and slavery in Australia as well, but slavery in America and and yeah, so it was it was a really powerful experience to work within that culture. And and why did you choose Colombia? So Colombia, well, I guess I chose the US. My first question was the US or the UK, which is sort of what, yep. you know, yep. as lawyers we normally tend to choose between. And the UK was very much, you know, they've got some astounding institutions there, but were very much focused on that technical legal side of things, that sort of black letter law. And I sort yep. of felt like I already had, you know, a lot of that training during my Australian legal degree and my practice as a lawyer. And what the gap was between the work I wanted to be doing so, you know, the work I'm doing now, where I get to use law as a vehicle for change yeah. and the skills I had been given was this, wasn't the technical legal stuff. It was the, it was the theory of, it was the strategy. It was the strategy and it was the theory of change and it was like a vision about how to do it. And the US unis seemed much better suited in their law degrees to that mm. in the UK universities. So that sort of, that was my US unis. And then in terms of Columbia, Columbia just had these, titans of the of these various movements so I had Professor Kimberly Crenshaw I had Professor Susan Stern it had these people that I had idolized for such a long time that the opportunity to learn from them just seemed yeah amazing amazing and also New York it means you know you it's where so much of these things are based like law for black lives and all these sort of things and so it was the opportunity to be immersed in this really amazing culture of social change to learn from these sort of these titans of of these movements and thinking and schools of thought. And it was, and Columbia is sort of known for its sort of being at the cutting edge of social justice lawyering. And so okay. it seemed yeah. like a natural home. Good choice. So you were, <laughs> you were living, working, studying there when the coronavirus hit. Yes, yes. <laughs> and how was, how was that being in New York? It was, it was really scary. It was, mm. uh, to be honest, Justin, it was, yeah. it went from zero to a hundred really fast. I you bet. know, I remember yeah. sitting in class one day and when the, and we read that the first case had been reported in New York and, and a week and a half later, I was rushing, I was on a plane home, you know, and uh, it was, it went from zero to a hundred really fast. I think the nature of how New York's sort of built meant that it was, that was inevitable. Uh, and so it just very quickly went from, you know, classes are going to be on, all of classes are going to be online for the rest of the semester to don't come anywhere near campus to go home <laughs> right now if you can. And, wow. uh, so it just, and, you know, that was all within the space of a week. So it was very rush. Um, it was very sad to say goodbye to everyone in such a rush, uh, but I was very fortunate to get home when I did. So I, I bet, I bet you're glad, glad, glad to, um, glad to see mainland Australia yeah and I can you know I was only totally I was only you know really over there for a week really where um and even the uncertainty and fear and anxiety I experienced during that week really makes me feel for people that are still stuck over there because Mm. um it's not a nice position to be in so yeah no I feel very lucky so you're joining us from Perth. Has uh, has WA always been, apart from studying in the US, has WA always been home for you? Well, it was where I was born, um, mm-hmm. Perth, and then I and then I moved to Brunei's in, in oh, what Brunei. Been, yeah, a bit of a random one, and you know, sort of in a funny turn of events, given my current work. 
uh, it was yes. because my dad was uh, a geophysicist in oil and gas industry. And so he, okay. so oil and gas was broom, booming in Brunei in the early 1990s. And so, uh, yeah, so we all sort of followed dad over there. He was working for one of the oil majors. And we were, so we were living there for five and a half years in the end. And that was really interesting because it was when the Sultan of Brunei was very rich and was very good friends with Michael yes. Jackson. So yes, um, <laughs> we got to see I Michael think he Jackson. was the world's richest man at one point. The Sultan. Yes, and and it sort of it was it was interesting because as expats, uh, as you know, white expats, we really you know received the benefit of that. It was it was a bizarre it was a bizarre world. It was it was you know like the the theme parks were free saying we saw Michael every time Michael Jackson played it was free and he'd pay he'd pay for free every few months it was just it was a really bizarre world and you know in contrast to extreme poverty uh that existed in Brunei so we were there for five and a half years then we went to England and we we're only there for a couple of years before coming back to Perth and and Perth's been home since other than the US as you say so it feels like home um but you know had had the same. yeah I was lucky to have the experience of living elsewhere when I was younger. So given given your dad was in oil and gas growing up, what does he think about your career now and what you're doing? Uh, I think it's um, – he's not in oil and gas anymore, which is good, because otherwise yeah, it would okay. give, more to, yeah. give rise yeah. to more problems than it does. But it's – I think he's – I think he's really excited by it. And I think that's – you know, my, I have a lot of friends living in Perth, you know, a lot of – our industry is fossil fuels. Yes. And so a large portion of my friends are either engineers with uh, fossil fuel companies or lawyers that represent fossil fuel companies. And there's none of them that I know that are resistant to climate action. You know, they all mm. want climate action. And I think, I think this idea that people who work for fossil fuels or in some way their livelihoods are dependent on fossil fuels don't want climate action is is not true most most of the time. And I think, mm. you know, these these people like, so, so what we need to think about is how are these people, which includes everyone from, you know, workers on mine sites to your lawyers and your engineers, how are we going to start transitioning, given that the end of these industries is now inevitable, given how the world is moving, how our markets are moving away from fossil fuels, given it's a matter of when or if, how do we make sure that all these people we sustain their quality quality of life and sustain mm-hmm. their have, have sustain these livelihoods and and you know I think these people are interested in these questions and my dad is one of them he's fascinated by the work I do he thinks it's really interesting and he thinks it's really important uh, and you know and I think casting blame on those people is to the extent that the climate movement has done that I think that is a shame and it's the wrong way to go. It's interesting you say that because I was, I was actually reading something this morning about uh, the jobs of the future and there was a report highlighting about how the green economy and green jobs, that sector is booming. Totally. And it, it is, um, you know, what, the, what the, the younger people are now studying at university with a view to getting into the sector. Yeah, totally. And I think it's, and we are running a real risk of being left behind economically if we keep trying to focus on these industries that have an expiry date. You know, I think mm. that it's really exciting to look at the renewables, what, what's happening with the renewable sector over in Europe, um, even the US, so on and so forth. Uh, and Australia, we have so many natural resources that really position us very well to being a 
sort of superpower of this post-carbon economy and, and that future world. And we sort of want to be moving now. We want to realise that potential. So, Do you think we are? I don't think we are at the moment, no. I think mm. I think companies are. I think there's actually some movement in the corporate space. Yes. I think government's lagging behind and it's doing us, and I, and I say that on both the federal level and the state level here in Western Australia where it's a Labor government. I think both parties are guilty of it, uh, I both major parties. Yeah. So, yes, no, I don't think we are doing it and I think we really should be doing it as a matter of urgency. Your background in the law, was that something that you always wanted to do when you were, when you were a child, when you were, say, going through school? Did you know what you wanted to do? Not really. I, I, had a, um, I used to, when I was in year four, I remember my dream job was being a paleontologist and that's only because it was the longest word I knew how to spell so, <laughs> yeah. so um no I didn't always want to be a lawyer I that I only really I made a last minute decision to do law when I um, finished high school I was tossing up between music so I'd done music for throughout high school and really yes yeah, so my main instrument had been the clarinet and but I also piano and uh, vocals were my sort of backup instruments so I was thinking about doing music composition and then I ultimately mm. settled on law uh, which I'm really glad I did <laughs> that was a wise decision I'm I'm grateful to 17 year old Zoe for making that decision <laughs> um, well you can you can have music as a hobby well that's exactly it and I think that's ultimately why I made the decision is that I found that doing music as a as a sort of vocation had was drilling the joy out of it for me I was just, it had just sapped all the joy out of it for me. And I was really sad about that. And that was at 17, let alone, you know, I actually had focused on it as study-wise. And now I really do. And it's just, it's my own personal hobby that I get so much joy out of. So I'm very glad to have made that decision. Hmm. And what and what about future study? Are you, are you done studying or have you, have you got more in you? Oh, look, never say never, Justin, but okay. maybe I can in this instance. <laughs> I am fairly studied out after a you know, six-year law degree here in Australia, law arts degree here in Australia and, and a master's overseas. No, yeah. I think, you know, I think the best use of my skills and knowledge at this point in time is being on the ground and doing the work. You know, and I think I've given you a number of examples during today's podcast yes. where we're really seeing this work have a tangible impact. And so I think for the time being, the place, you know, I'm going to most effectively have an impact is here. Maybe that changes in the future. Who knows? Well, Zoe, uh, we wish you all the very best. And it's been a pleasure talking with you today on the Scholars Podcast. And we will follow your career with much interest and best of luck in, in the future. Thank you so much for joining us today. Excellent. Thanks so much, Justin. Really enjoyed it.